So it is great to see you all back this evening. We have some deep truths that we get a chance to dig into tonight. Now, I know everybody is excited about hearing about that after we have been digging deep on Sunday mornings and then we come back and we dig again on Sunday nights. But Lord willing, this is going to be an evening that God will use in many lives in order to help set some people free. So let me kind of set things up with a couple of ideas. If you all have not noticed, society tends to label everyone and everything. And once those labels are given, there is almost an immediate impression that comes into our heart. That is, when a, a label is given, there's a picture that flashes to mind or an idea that is generated. So for a moment, I want us to do an experiment. And this experiment is one where I'm going to share a word, and in your mind, I repeat, in your mind, <laughs> keeping it between you and Jesus, in your mind. I want you to think of the first word that comes to mind when I give a word over here. In your mind. Do you all get that part? All right. So here's a word. Republican. Democrat. Muslim. Methodist. Old money. No money. Some of you are like, I, I see that picture in my, my mirror every single Monday morning there. Uh, conservative, liberal. Chances are if you understood the term, there was an impression, there was an idea that came into mind. Sometimes there's even a feeling inside that comes to mind with certain terms. Now, one of the first times that labels begins to impact people is back in high school. That is, there's a lot of different groups that are all through high school. And you've got your athletes and cheerleaders and your nerds and geeks and hipsters and rednecks and deadheads, drama crew, band members, chess club, and an assorted other group that is in between there. Now, in elementary school, it was a whole lot easier. That is, there were those with cooties and then there were those without cooties. It was pretty easy to figure out that one. And sometimes that would even change depending on whether or not they checked on the box. Do you like me? I like you. If so, check yes. So uh, anyway, the older people get, and fortunately enough, the more mature people get, the less and less some of those labels tend to matter in a person's life. And I think that's a good thing. In the uh, wise words of the great theologian, Medea, she said, it's not what they call you, it's what you answer to. That's a good word. Some of you are going to be writing that on Twitter tonight. I know it. So anyway, so anyway, there is one particular label that only comes probably in when people are in their 40s and 50s. It's one that tends to be attached when certain people do certain things. So if a middle-aged person, many times it's going to be a man, middle-aged person decides to get a sports car, or, you know, get a new hairstyle, or they take up skydiving at a strange age, or they do something that seems like they are regaining their youth, there's a label that society says, and that is they say the person is going through a mid... See, some of you have been labeled that before, haven't you? Midlife crisis. It's the idea, and it's quite honestly, sometimes, this is funny, this is just me thinking out loud for a moment. Sometimes the reason people do that is because there are things you always wanted to do before, you just never had money. 
It's like you finally got a chance. You're like, I'm going to get that car I've always wanted. Somebody's like, that's a midlife crisis. No, that's the fact I got some money to put on a car now. Anyway, totally different story. But for a moment here, the reason that that actually plays into this is because people sometimes look and say they're trying to go back and regain their youth. They're reverting back to adolescence at that point. There is a spiritual parallel for that that we get into in Galatians chapter 4. So let me set that up for you. That is, in an attempt of people in the church of Galatia in order to move forward in their maturity, they were actually taking steps that were moving them backwards. That is, instead of achieving maturity, they were reverting back to a spiritual infancy. Their motives were right. Their methods were wrong. The method that they were trying to use was legalism. Now, if you are not familiar with that term, you're about to get a clinic in legalism tonight. We are going to pull this idea out because I want you to see how this works in, how dangerous it can be, and how it actually does not lead towards maturity. It takes you back the other direction. So if you're wondering what that term is, legalism is an attempt to gain or keep favor or good standing with God by adherence to God's law or works-based religion. One of the tragedies of legalism is it gives the appearance of spiritual maturity while leading believers back towards a second spiritual childhood. Now, if you're looking for a quote that can stir people up on Twitter, I'll provide one of those for you tonight. That is, legalism leads to bondage in spiritual infancy. If you were to post that, everybody who understands the dangers of legalism, they will check it off, they will retweet it, and those who don't understand it will brand you a heretic for saying it. Legalism is dangerous. Now, I'm going to tell you, I am an ongoing, recovering legalist. It's what I was brought into. It's how I understood the Christian faith. Let me tell you, once it sinks in, it is difficult to see the world beyond law. It is difficult to walk in the freedom that you have in Christ. It is difficult. There's always something in the back of your mind that's saying, you could be doing more. You didn't do enough here. You need to start harder. You need to try more. And it's always sitting in the back of your mind. That's a reason why I think this is so important. If, if parents understand this and they can help provide a grace-based understanding of Christianity to their kids, it will help their kids not have to go back and unlearn so much of what it was that they learned along the way. Because of the fact that legalism is dangerous, there are many nice, smart, sincere, good people who have been fooled into thinking obeying God's law earns or keeps a good standing before God. They think that God loves them more and accepts them more based upon their performance. They're constantly living under this pressure of, I'm not doing enough. And because they never feel like they're not doing enough, they always go back and they make other promises and they, they promise themselves, they make promises to God, they make promises to accountability partners. Starting tomorrow, I will do better. Starting tomorrow, I'll read my Bible more. Starting tomorrow, I'm going to start praying more. Starting tomorrow, I'm going to be a better Christian. And all of that enthusiasm lasts all the way to the point they sin and mess up again. 
And when they sin, here's what happens. They beat themselves up, they drink another guilt milkshake, and they recommit themselves starting tomorrow, it's going to be different. And that cycle keeps repeating until one of three things happens. Either one, they give up on Christianity because they say the standards are too much. They resign themselves to a joyless life under the weight of guilt and condemnation. Or number three, they are radically transformed by the grace of Jesus Christ. And they get a chance to live what John 10.10 is about, an abundant Christian life. Now, I don't know about you, but the only one that sounds appealing is option three. I mean, like option one is quitting. That's not an option for me. Option number two is what I experienced for the first 12 years of being a Christian. And once you've experienced that and you've been free, you don't ever want to go back to that. Option number three is what I've now experienced for the last 16 years, and I get more and more excited about my walk with God every single year. So for the next couple of weeks, I'm going to be talking to believers who absolutely love Jesus, and at the same time, they are growing unbelievably weary trying to keep up in the race. I'm going to be talking to people in the next couple of weeks that they've heard of legalism, maybe they've even practiced it some, they just don't know why it's that bad. I'm gonna be talking to people who have been hurt and wounded by legalism, and they basically said, if that's what Christianity is about, I don't want any part of it. By the time the next couple of weeks are done, there's a really good chance most everybody in this room is going to be identifying with certain parts of what legalism has done in their lives. So that being said, I invite you, go with me tonight in your Bibles, Galatians chapter number 4. I'm going to be in verses 1 through 11, and we're going to read the whole section, but then I'm going to go back and focus primarily on verses 1 through 3. I'm speaking this evening on the subject of God's path to spiritual maturity. By the time this is done, this is about sanctification. This is about growing in Christ. This is about walking further with your Savior. So let's read the text starting in verse number one. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental teachings of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those by which, uh, by nature, are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, 
We need your spirit to guide us into truth tonight. May you set us free through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to share a few preliminary thoughts about legalism to set this up. First, legalism gets you nowhere fast. It's like a pilot who comes over the intercom saying, our navigator has lost our position. The bad news is we've been flying aimlessly for an hour. Good news is we're making great time. <laughs> legalism gets you nowhere fast. Another one here is legalism appeals to our pride. Temporary success of I'm going to do better tomorrow. And that temporary part of doing better fuels our pride to keep us coming back again the next time. Legalism has the appearance of righteousness. It seems good. It looks good. Colossians 2.23 speaks of legalism saying it has the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion, but it is of no value against fleshly indulgence. Another one, legalism gives you a list of good things to do and bad things to avoid. If you like a list like me, that's like catnip right there. You look at that and you're like, I love a list. And when I'm working through a legalistic system, I like checking things off the list. And every one I check off, like, I'm doing good. I'm doing better than yesterday. I'm doing far better than I thought I am which leads to, I'm definitely doing better than that person. You see how quickly pride can begin to come into this. Legalism says, if you obey the rules, God is pleased with you. Legalism facilitates comparison between people. If we check everything off our list, we're doing good. If you didn't check everything off of my list, you're doing bad. Comparison comes with this. The coin of legalism has two sides, pride and guilt. Every accomplishment fuels our pride. Every failure fuels our guilt. Our sense of pride will render us useless in the kingdom of God. Our sense of guilt leads to discouragement, embarrassment, anxiety, depression, and worthlessness. It is against the duplicity of that type of bondage that Jesus says, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. He says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. He says, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. It's against those teachings of legalism that the Apostle Paul boldly and consistently declared, so much so that in Galatians 5, he says, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. That's why the Apostle Paul spent so much time teaching about the wonders of grace and helping people understand the purpose of the law. That's why his comments may seem abrupt or insensitive at times. It's almost like he's standing in the middle of a freeway, the freeway of legalism, and he's flagging people down and he's saying, take this exit ramp into grace. Step over here. There's a better way. There's a plan that God has. So when we get into chapter 4, the Apostle Paul begins to contrast people before salvation and those after salvation. Now, for some people, that alone is a surprise. 
For some people, they might have always thought, I've always been a Christian. That is not the case. You might have always grown up in a Christian home, but none of us were always a Christian. There was a time in our life that we recognized our sin and our need for a Savior, repented of our sin by placing faith in what Jesus did for us. At that moment, you go from death into life. You move from unsaved into saved. Scripture tells us that we were spiritually born dead, according to Ephesians 2, 3, and 4. It says we were by nature children of wrath. We're born separated from God. Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, in the section that we're dealing with tonight, it says, however, at that time, when you did not know God, there was a time for all of us, we did not know God. We may have known about God, we didn't know him. Then in verse number 9, it says, but now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and the worthless elemental things? Now, this is big. The question is not, do you know God? The question ultimately is, does God know you? The issue is, does he know you? Is there an intimate relationship that you have with him? The Apostle Paul compares those who do not know God with those who know him. And he speaks in this section of a child and the maturing role that comes with a son. The impact of these verses is one that we only understand if we understand the way in which a child became a man within the first century culture. And there's going to be multiple different ways. There, there was a Jewish way that a child became a man. There was a Greek way a child became a man. There was a Roman way that a child became a man. All of these are influencing the way in which this particular section reads. So when you understand each one of them, you're like, ah, it's like light bulbs begin to go off when you hear the Apostle Paul's teachings at this point. So let's start with a Jewish perspective. In the first century Jewish perspective, on the first Sabbath after a boy's 12th birthday, his father took him to a synagogue where he became, quote, a son of the law. The father shared a simple blessing. The blessing was, blessed are you, O God, who has taken from me the responsibility of this boy. Some of you are like, I'd like to be praying that prayer right now myself. The boy would then pray a prayer of his own. Listen to the beauty of this. Oh, my God and God of my fathers, on this solemn and sacred day, which marks my passage from boyhood to manhood, I humbly raise my eyes to you and declare with sincerity and truth that henceforth I will keep your commandments and undertake and bear the responsibility of my actions towards you. And at that moment, in the eyes of his culture, he went from being a child of his earthly father to a son of the law. In the ancient Greek world, a boy came under his father's care until the age of 17 or 18. At 17 or 18, he became what was referred to as a, a phoebe, also translated a, a cadet. For two years, he would come under the direction of the state 
He was put through a period of isolation where he learned to hunt and to rely on his senses and his knowledge of survival. At the end of that initiation time, he went through a ceremonial act of cutting off his long hair and offering it to the gods. At that moment, he was said to have transitioned from boyhood into manhood. In the ancient Roman world, a boy became a man sometime between the ages of 14 to 17. A sacred festival took place, and that young man took off what was referred to as the, the toga praetexta worn by children and put on a toga virilis worn by adults. He would then offer his toys to Apollo to show that he had put away childish things. Does that ring a bell at all? It's exactly what Paul describes, 1 Corinthians 11, 13, 11. In each of those practices, it was known in the first century. It was known by the audience that the Apostle Paul is writing right here. So the original readers had a different vantage point. In our society, there is not necessarily a point in which we're saying a boy has now become a man. That's almost a rite of passage that's been removed. There, it was multiple ways in different parts of culture that it was understood. So with that as the backdrop, I want us to learn about God's path for spiritual maturity. Here's the the key truth, here's the big idea. We spend the rest of our time right here. First three verses. Until the date set by the Father, we were slaves of sin held under the guardian of the law. Until the date set by the Father, we were slaves of sin held under the guardian of the law. Notice what it says again, verses 1 through 3. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the Father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. So the word child in verse number one, it indicates a little child without power of speech. So you're talking somebody probably two years old or younger. This is really tiny kid. So when a boy is in that stage, in the eyes of the law, what it's saying is he might be the legal owner of a vast estate, but he cannot yet make any legal decisions for himself. He's not in control of his own life because everything is done and directed for him. He, he's not able to do that for himself. For all practical purposes, he had no more freedom than a slave. But when the child becomes a man, he transitions from childhood to sonship, and he enters the full inheritance that is his by the father. Verse number two, it says, the child is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. That's key, until the date set by the father. By the way, you and I were also under bondage, under sin, under law until a date that was set aside in eternity past where our Heavenly Father said, come in your mind. And on that day when we became followers of Christ, we became believers, we are now born into the family of God, adopted as sons and daughters of the King. So in this, we're under guardians and managers until the date set by the Father. 
So in the first century, families were assigned trusted slaves to act as guardians. That is a general term for somebody who was over underage boys or managers, that is household stewards. They also assigned a tutor. That was the pedagogos that I mentioned a couple of weeks ago. So this group of slaves, and by the way, to look at the African slave trade, to look at what had happened in America, that is a different view of what slavery was like back then. Most of what was going on back then is people working off debt for someone else. Also, at the end of seven years, everybody was released. There was a difference here. So be careful that we don't superimpose an American view of slavery on top of what Scripture is saying right here. So in this, this group of slaves would have full charge over the child's education, over their training, and over their welfare. The child was subservient to them and could do nothing without their permission until the date set by the father. And when that happened, when the father thought the child was ready, the child came out from under the guardians, the managers, and the tutors. On that day set by the father, the child's status changed. He was no longer a child. He was now a responsible adult and a citizen. Verse number three, so also we. Notice how the apostle Paul includes himself in this. While we were children, he's looking back at this state of children prior to placing faith in Christ. We're held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. Prior to placing faith in Christ, everyone was held in bondage of sin and law and considered to be that child. Paul defines the law in this as the elemental things of the world. It's like the ABCs of this world. Now, this is so important. He's creating this visual picture for people to get their mind around. That is, he's saying the law is the basics. It's the information that you needed to know. It was your spiritual ABCs to help you understand God is holy. You and I are depraved. We cannot live up to his standard ourselves. And we need a savior to do for us what we cannot do. That's what the law is there for. It is to teach us along that path. But listen, but when Christ comes, we don't need the ABCs. Because he's the Alpha and the Omega. He goes from the first to the last. According to Colossians 2, 3, it tells us that in Christ are hidden all the treasures in wisdom and knowledge. That is, the law was not God's final revelation. Jesus is God's final revelation. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. The law revealed basic truths. Jesus revealed the fullness of truth. Colossians 2, 3. The law is a shadow of God's character. Jesus is in the embodiment of God's character, Colossians 2.9. Now, granted, it's important to know your ABCs. Otherwise, you don't have the basis by which to learn. You don't have the basics to which to even frame the conversation. But if you see a grown man or a grown woman in the library reciting their ABCs and not reading books, you don't think that's a mature person. You think something's not right. Something has hindered 
their growth until the date set by the Father. We were slaves of sin held under the guardian of the law, verses 1 through 3. I want to read the next two and a half verses in order to help put an idea in your mind that I want you to wrestle with over this next week. Here's what it says, verses 4 through the first part of verse 6. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive, here it is, the adoption as sons, because you are sons. Now, now here's, here's the piece I'm wanting you to see. In the first three verses, Paul spoke of our time being a child. Now the language transitions to us being adopted as sons. Did you know that there is a New Testament distinction between children of God and sons of God? Children of God and sons of God. And again, this does not naturally fall out in our context because we have a different frame of reference that we work from. When a person places faith in Christ, the Bible says they are birthed, here's that word, birthed into God's family as a child of God. They are spiritual babes. They are to grow in maturity in Christ, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 2 through 3. At the same moment, we become children of God, that is, we obtain the legal rights and privileges as sons of God. A son can draw on the father's wealth as well as exercise privileges as sonship. In verse number five, it speaks of us receiving adoption as sons. What did Jesus tell Nicodemus in John 3? He said, you must be born again. Hold on just a moment. Why is it talking born and the next part is saying adopted? Are we born into the family or do we get adopted into the family? Do you see the distinction that's happening here? Okay, this is good. This is good. Okay. The New Testament word for adoption does not mean the same as our current term. The New Testament word for adoption means to place as an adult son. To be a child of God speaks of our spiritual birth into God's family. We're born again. To be a son of God speaks of our adopted position in Christ where we are granted the rights and the privileges of being in his family. Here it is. We enter God's family by regeneration, born again as a child. We enjoy God's family by adoption, being placed in as mature sons. Woo! <laughs> Come on. Like Tuesday of next week, you all are going to get that one. It's going to be like, oh, wow. I'm telling you, these are truths that when they begin to sink in, it changes the way we look at our path of maturity. Here's the thing. You are not waiting for a second filling. 
You're not waiting on some next blessing, some next peace. If I could just get God to give me this, then I could really start growing in Christ. No, the moment you became a believer, everything as a son or a daughter of Christ is placed in you. You are positioned in Christ. You had the rights and privileges of being an heir and a joint heir with the king. We need to stop asking God for what he's already given us and start saying thank you for what we have in Christ. Mm. So next week, we're going to pick up in this section, and we're going to begin to pull this out, and we're going to lay out a chart side by side to help people see, here's what you've been given in Christ. Here's your spiritual inheritance. Here's how you live out what God has already placed in. But as we close, think about those two pieces again. Until the date set by the Father, we were slaves of sin and held under the guardian of the law. And the next one that I just shared at the end, we enter God's family by regeneration, born again as a child. We enjoy God's family by adoption, placed is mature sons and daughters. Both concepts are foundational for what we get into this next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are asking tonight, God, that you would continue to work the truths of your word deep into our hearts. God, we recognize that unless you are the one that illuminates, unless you bring to mind those truths and help us to believe, to reckon upon what we have in Christ, then, God, we just keep going back to the elemental things over and over again. We don't make progress. We go back the opposite direction. So, God, I am praying that in the next several weeks as we continue to work through this, Lord, set people free by the dozens in this room. God, help people to see that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. And Lord, we'll thank you for what you do. In Jesus' name, amen.